screen. Recording in the cloud. Uh, Mark, do you need anything? I'm about to turn off my uh, video and audio. Whoa, framing quote, political scientist at the rant. If you do, let me know. Thank you. So I.
Welcome to everyone, wherever you're tuning in to Global Minnesota's Global Conversation to Koreas. Welcome to our program that's free and open to the public. You may be in Minnesota, you may be across the United States, you may be around the world, but we are really glad you are here with us this evening in Minnesota for this very special, great, great decisions topic, the two Koreas is part of what we call our global conversations that we're pleased to bring to the public each month. My name is Mark Ritchie and I have the honor of serving as president of Global Minnesota and I'll be our host for the evening here, but I'll be taking your questions that you can send in over if you're streaming, you can see the email. So we'll be having questions from the audience and questions from myself. But first, we're going to be hearing from our special guests. Let me just say thank you to those of you who are members. Your financial support of Global Minnesota through your membership makes these kind of free public events possible, and we couldn't do it without you. So thank you again. If you're not a member yet, you could be joining an August and very distinguished group of people from around the planet. We would welcome your membership, and you can check us out on the website, just globalminnesota.org. We uh, urge all who are taking advantage of these programs to tell your friends, family, and others about the many different programs coming up. Some of you saw that in some of the early uh, slides. Uh, there's a whole list there on our website. Our programs, these global conversations are co-sponsored with program partners the Minneapolis Central Library, the Friends of the Hennepin County Library, the Landmark Center. We often partner with some of the organizations who are part of the national Great Decisions program, some at the Edina Senior Center, Friends of the Edina Library, Washburn and Plymouth Libraries. Groups around the state and around the nation gather once a month, sometimes once every other month to discuss important topics facing the world, facing our nation, facing our communities in the global arena. And these great decisions conversations help give us a framework for tonight's conversation. Our expert and our lead presenter, our discussion tonight, Dr. Raymond Kuo is a political scientist with the RAND Corporation and an expert in international security in East Asia. We've gotten to know Dr. Kuo here in Minnesota. He's been a very important part of our community. And he came to us from before, was a tenure track professor at Fordham and University of Albany at the State University System in New York. Worked at the UN, worked with a number of organizations like the Center for Transitional Justice. And he's been a research specialist looking at the broader global picture and giving us a sense of conflict, conflict resolution and how great powers, big, small nations that are rising, how this international community, it's a complex ecosystem. And Dr. Kuo is one of the experts that can help us make sense out of some of the big things that are happening right now. This topic, the two Koreas, is part of that national discussion. And I want to ask our colleague, our friend, our presenter, expert for the evening, Dr. Kuo, to join me here uh, on the screen. And I'm handing the microphone over to you, Dr. Kuo. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Great. Thank you so much, Mark, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here to be discussing the two Koreas. Uh, let me start by sharing my screen just to... 
that should be it. Okay. <clears throat> and oh, uh, okay. Great. So thank you again very much for having me here. I'm just delighted to speak about this question, uh, about the topic, the two Koreas. And so the question I want to answer today is how will U.S. policy towards the Korean Peninsula change under President Biden? And the main takeaways from today's discussion, or at least the points I'm going to make, are that we're entering a period of alliance and relationship renewal. But the U.S. is going to be working much more closely with, uh, say, South Korea and Japan, to confront not only the issues with North Korea, but also uh, with China. However, speaking of North Korea, one of the major issues is that we no longer really have the ability to defeat or isolate or dismantle the North Korean nuclear program. Now it's a matter of trying to manage a new nuclear North Korea. And how do you live with and, uh, that type of state and make sure it doesn't you know, cause aggression amongst other states in the region? So as an outline of, of, of the discussion today, I'll first start off with looking at ROK-DPRK relations, which tend to oscillate between a focus on security issues and confrontation and a focus on conciliation and political reunification. Uh, the second will be looking at US-DPRK relations and the, particularly the role of denuclearization in the, in, the uh, in the political relationship. And lastly, US policy towards South Korea under Biden. Um, I've already thrown out a bunch of acronyms, so I just want to clarify some terms here. ROK is the Republic of Korea, or it's South Korea. DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic, when you see those three words, usually means communist. Actually, it does mean communist. And so we're talking about North Korea. So <clears throat> as I mentioned, South Korea and North Korean relations tend to oscillate between confrontation and conciliation. On the one hand, <clears throat> security interests uh, often come up, um, you know, for understandable reasons. Uh, there was obviously the Korean War and the North, sorry, the North Korean South Korean border is the most heavily militarized border in the world. Um, so security, uh, security challenges will often come up and in that case South Korea tends to align with the United States. On the other hand, reunification is still a very important political ideal or sort of motivator, uh, reunification between North and South Korea. And in that sort of situation, when that sort of politics dominates in South Korea, you'll find South Korea tends to act as a mediator between the United States and North Korea. <clears throat> now, when it comes to the security confrontation, you know, it's South Korea vastly outclasses North Korea. It's twice as large in terms of population, much, much larger in terms of its economy, and also spends about uh, three times more on the military. Uh, the way I kind of like to, to kind of visualize this is that this is uh, Seoul, the capital of South Korea at night, and Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea at night, looks like this. Uh, much darker, far less development. You can see that in this kind of picture here, From this is from the Blue Marble Project at NASA where they took a, ooh, let's see if I have a laser pointer here. Oh, good. Um, <clears throat> where they took a, a, a picture of, of the world at night. And over here is China, uh, kind of all lit up. Over here is Japan, again, all lit up. And this is South Korea right here. You can even see the shipping that is along that coast. And this relatively dark spot here, that's North Korea. That little white dot there, that's Pyongyang. So we're talking far less development within North Korea versus South Korea. Um, however, <clears throat> the one area where North Korea is not outclassed is in military power. Uh, they have about double the manpower versus South Korea. Granted, the South Korean military is far more technologically advanced. But the major issue is this right here, the artillery pieces. North Korea has 
almost double the amount of artillery pieces as South Korea. And there's a good reason for that. It's because Seoul, South Korea's capital, is within 50 kilometers of the North Korean border. So North Korea can effectively hold the capital city of South Korea hostage. Uh, it's well within range of its artillery pieces, and we don't have a good way to shoot down artillery shells. Um, <clears throat> but that said, North Korean South Korean relations also swing towards can swing towards reunification. Uh, we have these iconic pictures from 2018 where North Korea allowed uh, some of its citizens to go uh, meet in the north, uh, right at the border with South Korea, and meet their old family who, who had fled down to South Korea. So this lady over here on the left, she's 92 years old, and she finally got to see her son, who she had to leave in North Korea, and she hadn't seen him since he was four years old. Similarly, we have you know other pictures of this, and these sorts of things tug at both the heartstrings in South Korea, but also are a potent political issue. Um, consider this poll here from Gallup that uh, you know this is a public opinion of Kim Jong-un in South Korea. His favorability, uh, favorability ratings are quite low and his unfavorability ratings are quite high. But because he's able to influence or manipulate these sorts of political events, he can actually quite strongly increase or decrease his favorability in South Korea, giving him a measure of influence over the politics in that country. Um, he's still underwater politically, but you know we're talking a 20, 30 point jump uh, in favorability just from an event like this. So <clears throat> where is South Korea now? That's the big question. Is it more focused on security or is it more focused on reunification? Well, the current South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, says <clears throat> that he wants to have by 2032 a joint Korean Olympics and that Korea will stand tall uh, by achieving peace and unification by 2045. Most people think this is just absolutely not going to happen, but it gives you a sense of where his mind is at and where he wants to go. <clears throat> and so as a result, he's established a number of inter-Korean dialogues and inter-Korean summits where he meets with Kim Jong-un and his counterpart. Um, these summits are designed to find ways to promote a peaceful Korean Peninsula through stepwise disarmament and denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula. So North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons and South Korea gets out from under the US nuclear umbrella. Uh, it wants to eliminate conflict and also promote exchange, modernizing road links, continuing talks and establishing a liaison office in the North Korean side where the two sides can come together and meet and discuss these issues and kind of have a location for further talks. So essentially, we might think that the South Korean preference ordering is this. First and foremost, they're interested in reunification. Secondly, regional peace, in part through that reunification, uh, improving relations, fostering peace, creating the starting conditions for greater conciliation, or at least not inciting any kind of North Korean aggression. Uh, denuclearization comes third. Nukes are worrisome, but they're primarily a threat to the United States, not to South Korea. And so they're uh, less prioritized than these other two um, these other two policies. Now the monkey wrench here is us. Uh, Inter-Korean peace depends fundamentally on the actions of the United States. We have a mutual defense treaty with South Korea. Got uh, I think it's sixty thousand troops in Korea, and also as I mentioned, uh, South Korea is part of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. <laughs> and unfortunately, or for say uh, President Moon Jae-in. The US preference ordering is kind of the opposite of the South Korean one. Uh, denuclearization is the principal object here that uh, 
possibly the whole peninsula, but mostly when we think about denuclearization, so we're just talking about just North Korea denuclearizing, giving up its weapons. Um, regional peace and stability, but attempted through a different way, whereas South Korea would prefer to see that conciliation leads to less aggression by North Korea. The US tends to approach this as no, deterrence requires coercion and military force to say, to demonstrate to North Korea the consequences of aggression. And lastly, you know, Korean reconciliation might be kind of nice, but it's not really that important for the United States. <clears throat> and so as a result, you'll see tweets from, say, Donald Trump um, talking about uh, giving, making threats to and, and risking peace and stability in order to get denuclearization. He calls he called uh, Kim Jong-un little rocket man. He talks about having the U.S. having a much bigger nuclear button and more powerful one and his button works. Uh, there's no subtext whatsoever going on in that tweet. Um, and also, you know, statements like this that, you know, the United States will be met with fire and fury. I'm uh, sorry, North Korea will be met with fire and fury. Um, yet at the same time, Trump in particular really liked to personalize foreign policy in a way that, you know, George Bush did this to some extent when he said he looked into Putin's soul and saw, you know, uh, you know, saw what kind of person he was, but I think it really reached a height under Donald Trump. And so these are just a variety of statements that he's made about Kim Jong-un. And there's ability to, if you're a savvy foreign policy actor, like Kim Jong-un is, to take advantage of this personalization or this vanity to get certain policy objectives done. So when Trump says things like, we fell in love, he wrote me beautiful letters, he gets it. Um, <clears throat> Kim Jong-un can reply here saying that, President Trump keeps saying the personal ties between me and him are not hostile, and we can still exchange letters talking about health and other things. And so Kim Jong-un, I think, was quite savvy about this and using it to <coughs> achieve uh, the U.S.-North Korean summits that we saw in 2019, 2020. Um, <coughs> and so here they are meeting in, I think, in Singapore, and then uh, also uh, Trump took an impromptu trip to the, de the demilitarized zone in Korea, between the two Koreas, the first president to ever have done that. And ultimately these summits failed, as we know. Uh, in part, that's because the United States in particular wasn't very good at listening to the, what the North Koreans actually wanted. Uh, and instead of kind of building up the process so that lower level diplomats hashed out the areas of agreement, you finally bring in the the, um, the leaders of the two countries to, kind of, to uh, finalize the last few issues and then sign the agreement. Instead, they were pinning a lot on the two leaders finding some sort of common ground and then leaving all the process uh, to follow from that. It doesn't work out so well. It usually doesn't work out very well. And of course, these two summits, these summits failed. Uh, in the meantime, the North Korean missile ranges have increased until right now they have the capability to strike most cities in the United States. On top of that, uh, they use solid fuel, not liquid fuel. Liquid fuel, you have to literally kind of stand next, like, like a, a gas station. You're standing there next to the missile, kind of fueling it up. Instead, <clears throat> the solid fuel can travel around with the missile. And I do mean travel around because now they're on mobile platforms, which makes them much, much harder to strike and take out. So essentially, North Korea is, is rapidly getting, if it doesn't already have, mutually assured destruction with the United States, which is a condition, not a policy. It's when both sides have the ability to deliver nuclear weapons that can survive any countermeasures under their command and control, we get a condition of mutually assured destruction, which is ultimately what these nukes were about. Uh, the protection against uh, sort of a, a, a nuclear 
weapon of last resort to survive against any kind of American aggression. <clears throat> and so as a result, right now, the United States is stuck in a position where it can't really stop North Korean nuclear weapons. We can only manage uh, North, the relationship with North Korea to prevent any aggression and hopefully prevent any exchange of nuclear weapons, uh, fire and missiles. Um, on top of that, because those summits fail, well, the Kim regime is not exactly known for being uh, tolerant of failure. He ended up executing the five officials over the summit. And if you recall that liaison office that North Korea set up with South Korea, well, they blew it up in 2020 uh, as a very clear indication that they were not happy with how the summit has gone with the United States uh, and, in order, and they'll punish the South Koreans as a result. On top of that, to just make this kind of picture a little bit worse, US and South Korean relations under Trump were quite strained. Uh, you know, Moon Jae-in had kind of hung his hat on the fact that he would be the, uh, he would be the mediator between North Korea and South Korea and, and, uh, and the United States. Uh, he would be the interlocutor that would provide the good offices. Instead, uh, Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un essentially cut Moon Jae-in out of these negotiations. Trump also canceled what he called war games, uh, joint military exercises with the South Koreans, which are pretty clear demonstration of the US commitment to uh, the, the country. And also he forced South Korea to pay more for um, stationing US troops in Korea. All told, he essentially treated South Korea as a bit of an ancillary partner and started questioning the foundations of the military alliance and the broader relationship. And this is the situation that President Biden stepped into. Um, so now, <clears throat> just in the last section, I'd like to discuss US policy towards South Korea under the new Biden administration. And we can already get some hints of this so far. It's still early days yet, but in March, the Biden administration released an interim National, uh, National Security Strategic Guidance, or NSS. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the interim NSS makes three uh, key points for this discussion. First, alliance renewal. Second, a focus on DPR, uh, North Korean denuclearization. And third, an orienting of the, relationship, the US-South Korea relationship to also tackle China. So in terms of our alliance renewal, uh, both uh, the, sorry, uh, in, uh, the, the NSS says that it's, the US is going to reaffirm their mutual commitment to the defense of South Korea, and also affirms that the US will provide extended deterrence that is nuclear protection using its full range of capabilities, again, being under that nuclear umbrella. In addition, South Korea was the second White House summit meeting that the, that the administration held. The first one was with uh, Japan. And both Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin paid their separate visits to, North, uh, to South Korea as well. So kind of demonstrating that we want to coordinate very, very closely with South Korea. And we want to renew the alliances that had atrophied to some extent under the previous administration. Next is denuclearization. In uh, the statements, I believe, with uh, Secretary of State Blinken, <clears throat> uh, the US and South Korea emphasized their shared commitment to the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and you know, their intent to address the DPRK's nuclear and ballistic missile programs. And I highlight the Korean Peninsula because that language in particular is a concession to South Korea. The view that it's not just North Korean nuclear weapons, that's the issue, but the nuclearization of the entire Korean peninsula, including the US nuclear umbrella, that needs to be uh, dismantled to some extent, or at least as part of this process of denuclearization. And lastly, there's managing a rising China. Uh, <clears throat> you know, 
China is, I believe, South Korea's largest trading partner. Uh, it's obviously a close neighbor, but it's also one where they've had recently very quite rocky relations. In 2017, the United States uh, convinced the South Korean government to allow them to deploy the THAAD missile system, a terminal high altitude area defense. Essentially, the idea is that these missiles deployed in South Korea would be able to shoot down North Korean rockets coming over to the United States. They're also able to position to shoot down Chinese rockets coming over to the United States as well. And so as a result, China was quite unhappy about this. Uh, in retaliation, they launched a boycott and a variety of economic uh, tariffs, which caused a pretty precipitous decline in um, cosmetics, duty-free stores, and casinos. And I mentioned uh, duty-free stores in particular because the Chinese banned tour groups from going, to China, uh, from going to South Korea. And ultimately, I think economists worked out that it amounted to about a, a percentage point uh, of GDP being knocked off the South Korean economy because of this. However, <clears throat> because of this economic retaliation, the South Koreans were, had sharply negative views of China. Um, dark blue here is South Korea, lighter green here is Japan. And you can see that, you know, in some cases, the South Koreans are, uh, are actually more, uh, have more, more negative views of China than, than do the Japanese. So you look over here, China's growing economy is bad, China's growing economy is good. Well, for Japan, 55% think that China's growing economy is good, whereas you're about even 50-50 or 48-48 in South Korea about whether or not this thing is good or bad. Also, a solid majority in South Korea, and even more so in Japan, think that Chinese investment in their economies is bad. Similarly, <clears throat> how much do you trust China or Xi Jinping to be a supportive partner uh, in unification, or I think that's just a standard for more uh, for politics more generally? Very strong, solid majority just don't have a lot of trust here in, uh, in, in Xi Jinping or China itself. And for the first time in 2018, China actually exceeded North Korea in terms of the dominant threat amongst South Koreans of what they thought were the, was, a, was a, the most pressing threat to their country. Um, <clears throat> there's also been concurrent increase in trust in the United States as a result of this. How much do you trust uh, the United States in uh, green and uh, Trump in blue? Well, if we ignore Trump, um, there's pretty strong trust in the United States. Uh, a, a solid majority trusts that the United States is going to be a supportive partner. Uh, it's probably likely to be even higher than that now that uh, Biden's in office. Um, and similarly, even if there is a unified Korea, South Koreans, by an overwhelming majority, think that they should continue to have an alliance with the United States. <clears throat> oh, uh, oh. Sorry. There we go. So <clears throat> um, South Korea right now is in very much of a balancing act. On the one, I know, actually, I should say Kim uh, Moon Jae-in is in very much of a balancing act. He wants to pursue a more conciliatory relation with, South, with North Korea, but the South Korean public tends to want more security. Uh, security against China, but also to some extent security against North Korea as well. And so as a result, China is able to leverage the North Koreans, uh, uh, North Korea against, say, the U.S.-South Korean partnership. Um, and there's also the issue of Japan, which has had a oftentimes quite rocky relationship with South Korea as well. And so, there we go. Because these countries don't align neatly on these kind of cross-cutting policy issues, it means that there's going to be a result, there's going to be disagreement on 
prioritization and exactly how these different countries have tried to achieve even common goals. This can create cross-cutting problems and it's going to require really careful diplomacy from the Biden administration to figure this out. But ultimately, I think we're really coming into an era where we're going to see much closer alliance coordination and, and uh, foreign policy coordination between the United States and South Korea and probably also Japan throwing the mix there as well. Uh, and, but unfortunately, at least when it comes to the DPRK, we're no longer an area where we can hope to defeat or in somehow dismantle North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons systems. It's now an era, era, uh, era we have to manage that system, uh, manage that uh, relationship more intensely. Um, this all requires careful diplomacy. And the qu big question is, can the Biden administration get the domestic politics on board in addition to working out the foreign policy side? Uh, so thank you very much. I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Kuo, and thank you for giving us the big picture here. Um, I want to bring our focus in on this question of the two. You ended with a comment mostly focused on the U.S. and other places. I want to go to the two. So this uh, desire on the part of the leadership in what we call South Korea uh, to see concrete steps. You talked about, uh, you know, information and possible, you know, uh, hosting of events. Korea wants to host the, the, the next, the 2030 World Expo, and there's discussion of it being done combined, and see that as steps. Um, so this is an approach that has been used for other unification uh, around the planet. Um, what makes this situation similar? And what makes it different from other successful unification um, approaches that have been in our lifetime quite successful? Sure, yeah. So I think there are two major issues. First is cost. Um, when East and West Germany reunified, uh, I think the West German economy is only about two to three times larger than the East Germany. North South Korea is about depending on the figures, 20 to 40 times larger than North Korea. So it's a much bigger ask for South Korea to take on the idea of integrating North Korea and fusing its economy. I think, I don't know the exact number, but uh, if unification were to happen, North Korea jumps up the rankings, uh, economic, uh, economic speaking, quite high. Uh, and South Korea falls quite far just because of this unification process. And, and just, sorry, just because of the disparity in their economic development. I think the second issue is what happens to Kim Jong-un and the Kim regime more specifically. I mean, this is a personalistic dictatorship. Uh, they have a cult of personality. They also have you know, 1.2 million people uh, in their armed forces. Um, <clears throat> and part of the reason for this is regime security. If you're going to, can we really imagine a reunified Korea where Kim Jong-un doesn't get killed in some way? And if so, what will that process look like? Is he going to go into exile? Uh, will he have a place in the new government? I, it's hard to imagine him being a member of parliament and willing to serve as sort of second fiddle within a larger, broader South Korean political system. Um, I think the question for Kim is why should he share power in a unified Korea when he's a sole power in a divided Korea and therefore has much more uh, personal security as well as regime security? Um, I don't think anyone's really figured out a way to how to square that circle. Um, and so I think that's what's going to make this much trickier than, say, the East and West German reunification. So this is a, a kind of question that uh, has perhaps some broader context, because I think 
uh, you know, at a global level, certain things, pandemics don't really care about these little borders that we're talking about and certain kinds of digital transfers on money or information or disinformation don't really care about these borders. So there's a whole different question um, that let's say other people would face. Uh, this is uh, Morocco's, there's questions of, you know, different kinds of unifications going on all over the planet and disunifications, uh, South Sudan being um, one of the more recent examples. But okay. in that context, the Koreans are particularly active in the global digital sphere, Yeah, both. And having that <clears throat> kind of technological advancement in what is clearly one of the most important things about the future. What do you think that implies about cooperation, technological advancement in a kind of a, you know, it's, it's about data, about coding, it's about things that both have been extraordinarily successful with. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously South Korea is just this tech wonderland. Um, I, you know, I, I, whenever I go to Asia, I'm always impressed by just how much further ahead they are in terms of just the ubiquity of technology everywhere compared to say the United States. There are good and bad things about that, right? Like I don't have to have a phone with me all the time here and it's perfectly fine, but be that as it may. Um, I think, however, that in addition to trying to mesh the economies together under some sort of unification plan, the issue is that they're also just very different economies. Um, there will be a lot of technology transfer from South Korea to North Korea uh, in, any, in the event of any kind of unification. Um, there would be, have to be a lot of essentially what we might think of as just a mass public job retraining effort to get North Korea kind of teched up so that they can actually, you know, perform in a in a uh, <clears throat> in an advanced economy. Um, I think, if I recall correctly, there's some really interesting uh, books out there of uh, just talking to North Korean defectors to South Korea, and it's <clears throat> sort of this almost like a future shock kind of feeling that they arrive from North Korea and it's just so much technology, so different from what they planned uh, that some in some cases the North Korean defectors have actually defected back to North Korea just because of that sort of future shock, that culture shock that they that they uh, encounter. Um, and then there's the issue of criminal networks and sort of. North Korea's involvement in things like smuggling and counterfeiting. Um, I <clears throat> don't have a good sense, this is kind of outside of my area, of how uh, that would be handled. Um, because if there is some sort of unification plan, well then, what exactly happens to all these illicit activities? Um, presumably they would stop, but how? And especially in conjunction with the idea of regime security, this is where North Korea gets a lot of its hard currency from, which it absolutely needs for foreign exchange. Um, how do you manage that process? Does South Korea start giving sort of cash transfers to some extent to North Korea to kind of get them over this hurdle? Um, I, I, I just don't know, but I, I think it's an issue that deserves more thought. Thank you, because I do think that, you know, there are many parts of our country, our state of Minnesota, that are, you know, basically don't have broadband. I mean, yeah. here in the richest country on the world, lots of parts of the country without basic services. And so what are the different approaches? 
that we will have to consider around the whole planet and what might there be some information. But when we use the concept of two Koreas, we have, you know, it doesn't take much to see a newspaper headline about the two Americas, the northern part of America and the southern part of America, um, the the, uh, the uh, illicit and uh, so-called illegal activities used to help finance the war in both sides. I mean, there's many things that happen when people who are cousins, brothers and sisters, parents and children decide to use armed struggle because an ideological struggle, we call it the Cold War, you just can, you know, referencing China and missile. I mean, the Cold War talk, this, the slavery talk, I mean, these things where ideology or sup supposedly ideology become armed conflict or armed camps that then can break into armed conflicts, you know, is part of biblical lore. It's part of our country's recent history, it's in the context of statues being removed and plaques being built today. So this is a, you know, a very long-standing global question about what happens when families are torn asunder. And it seems like um, a thoughtful process of the future, let's say something like the RAND, you know, RAND is, is about thinking about the future, has put time and money and maybe not publicly, but into how do humans do this better? Do we just go to new cold wars? Do we just like throw missiles around? Do we just act like people are this or that? Or has Rand done some thinking about how when we have rendered asunder family by family, we fought, try to find a way. Greeks thought that Olympics could help bring people together. In Minnesota, at Pipestone, there were special rules of how we, the beginning of World's Fairs were, can we stop Europe and especially France and Britain from warring how about it now? What, what have you seen at RAND that's helping to think about how we bring together families rendered asunder? Sure. I, 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 have, I do have to make a caveat that I can't speak for RAND, uh, probably because I'm just... I'm just yeah, you don't have to. You're a human being. You're <laughs> Fair enough. Country. Uh, but um, I published a book in August on, on some of these issues and how... Um, so I guess that there's a there's a big debate right now over the future of the liberal international order, which I tend to think is the perhaps our way right now of trying to heal these sort of sundered wounds. Um, the liberal international order, essentially established by the United States in the wake of World War II, to avoid uh, a lot of the causes that led to World War One and to World War II. Um, so, for example, having uh, international institutions where states can uh, discuss their, their differences, like say the United Nations, having military alliances where you can coordinate with your allies and in, and in that way, both A, get a little control over in terms of their foreign policy, but B, allowing them to have a little control over your foreign policy as well so that you aren't kind of stumbling into conflicts. Uh, free trade organizations, and <clears throat> which was supposed to be paired up with 
domestic level transfers to kind of cushion the blow of free trade, but using economic exchange as a way to avoid having, well, you know, why go to war when you just trade with each other instead? It's kind of a, a hope for the United States and China right now that our trade relations might inhibit that sort of conflict. Trade wars don't really help with that, but there we go. Um, <clears throat> and then lastly, a focus on human rights as well and democracy. The liberal international order has been under a lot of strain recently, uh, partly because the United States, partly because these rising challengers. And in the book, I argue that you know a lot of people are saying, well, we should just jettison the order and move towards a more transactional foreign policy, where it's a bit of every man for himself. Uh, and um, the US being the largest, strongest country is going to be able to get a great deal out of that. And my retort to that is, I mean, yes, that's true, but only for a very short time. Because the thing about being engaging in sort of transactional relationships, and I think this is true at the international level, I think it's also true at the interpersonal level, is that eventually that comes out and everyone stops trusting you. Nobody really wants to work with you because they're always concerned that you're gonna to try to get a one up on them. Um, this idea of diffuse reciprocity, of <clears throat> A more generalized, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, but we don't have to do the scratching immediately. We don't need to write it all down. We just have this generalized sense that we are in this together and facing common challenges. That's what I think the liberal national international order embodies, that sort of feeling. And I think that's ultimately what we need to see a renewal of that order in order to kind of address these issues. And in the speeches of this week, it's the special UN week, the General Assembly, lots of rhetoric, lots of speeches from everybody. But um, do you see in that the makings of what is imagined as a transactional in this COVID pandemic moment? Do you see innovative thinking about renewal of institutions and the creation of new, you know, we now use language like governance by goals, and we have Kyoto Protocols, we have Paris Accords, we have Sustainable Development Goals. What are you seeing where that could have some application to bringing the brothers and sisters of the Korean Peninsula back into social and political economic relationships? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think uh, Biden's speech was quite good in terms of, you know, going out there and saying that the United States is willing to be that sort of capable, effective um, social partner, I, should, I guess, um, that they're, they're, we're, we're willing to be uh, a good, an honest broker once again, and work with other states and, you know, kind of lead the international system, but also try to make sure that they're positive gains for everybody. I think his discussion of COVID was just right on point with that. Uh, and it's understandable that other countries want to, you know, kind of push the United States through their uh, UN General Assembly speeches to take lead on this because they need our vaccines, essentially. Um, but uh, ultimately, it comes down to the United States and whether or not we're willing to do that. And it looks like, according to the Biden speech, that yes, we're, we're, on, that, we're on that path. Uh, also, the other things that the Biden administration has done, like reinvigorating these discussions of um, of Co was it Covax, um, the, uh, the yeah, <laughs> of the vaccine supply, and, and also in the security realm, <clears throat> working with allies, establishing the Quad. I, there was been, there's obviously this fracas over Australia and the UK and the United States, but. It is part and parcel of this idea of working with regional partners uh, and coordinating with them to have um, on security cooperation. Uh, 
In term- Go ahead. Oh, in terms of the Koreas, this is where I'm a little bit less certain that things are going to, that we're going to see much effect from uh, the U.S. reengaging having effect on Korean, North and South Korean reunification. In part, I think it's because the, the drivers of this are often pretty internal. Uh, it's what's going on in North Korea and what's going on in South Korea uh, that's going to determine uh, whether or not like the, the, the scope for unification. Obviously, the United States has a role here. Uh, and with the US focusing more on China, it kind of contracts that space even further. But right now, I'm not sure that uh, Moon Jae-in has gotten enough from his sort of conciliatory policy that it's still worthwhile for him to continue down this, this uh, this uh, sort of reunification path. And North Korea doesn't seem to be all that interested in either uh, for their own domestic reasons, which we don't really know, but it seems like that's what's We don't know, but yeah. there's some interesting aspects to this. Uh, South Korea is the only of the rich countries that chose to be part of the COVAX system. Right. And of course, COVAX is the, the application of the charity model. That's you know one of its the big weaknesses. Um, and that's partly a refusal to really live up to the Doha agreement, which said, you know, if there's a pandemic, people can make vaccine. And so, yeah. no, no, we're going to hand <laughs> it over to you as charity. You know, South Korea has taken a very, very unusual, brilliant kind of progressive position as being a rich country part of that system, you know, that's something there that is a different way of thinking. And I think when you find those different ways of thinking, you go, okay, now how does that apply? Because likely it's not settled. It won't be for maybe another year or nine months, but Busan, Korea probably uh, will be the site of a World Expo, World's Fair, a big one Mm -hmm. in um, the range of 2030 around the time of the Sustainable Development Goals and whatever comes after them, probably launched in that time period. Mm -hmm. It will bring world attention on Korea, South Korea in particular, but the peninsula. And it'll be one of those really interesting global opportunities you know, we have Olympics and we have World Cup. There are things that go on that bring attention. Can you imagine that both parts, North and South, of the two Koreas on the peninsula hmm. will see those sort of global events? I do remember that there was some sports-related interaction that yes. went down that was pretty interesting in the yeah. Olympics. Of course, Minnesota, we like to call that the Minnesota Olympics because there were so many Minnesotans there. But, you know, ping pong diplomacy, we're in maybe the 40th or 41st year. There are things that happen that are somewhat linked to, let's say, exogenous events, but give opportunities. Any of that might be out there in the future? Possibly. I mean, it's certainly these sort of focal international events can help move the needle a little bit. But I think the, the question is whether or not the North and South Koreans, let alone the United States, are doing the necessary preparatory work in the background. That <clears throat> you can use these events, but, you know, both what's the coordination going into it and then what is what, what carries the momentum afterwards. Um, that I'm less certain about. I mean, you blew up the liaison office. That does not a very good sign in terms of like the additional uh, of 
setting the stage for additional cooperation. I don't know how, I don't believe there have been very much, uh, there's been talks about that 2032 Olympics, but I don't think it's gotten much beyond talks. Um, <clears throat> certainly the 2045 reunification date, that hasn't gone anywhere. So we have a question from the audience. What is Kim Yong-jong's role in North Korea? Kim Yo, oh, uh, this is uh, Kim Jong's sister, I believe, correct? Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I would, if, if I knew that answer, I would be paid so much more. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> a very fair answer. But of yeah. course, she had a special role in visiting South Korea, being a representative of, right. uh, of the government in that way. And uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting to see where um, spouses, family members, others play roles in the larger. What about in South Korea? Is there, uh, are there informal or celebrities or family? Are there things that we don't know in the U.S. because we just don't get enough news but are important to be like, for example, K-pop stars? Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, we're sitting here talking about South Korea and we're not really running the video, which we should be running the video. Yes. Nobody has done more for the UN than South Koreans K-pop this last week. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I'd start with uh, Kim Jong-un's sister. I think one of the major issues is, yes, we just don't have enough information out of North Korea. It's really hard to say what's going on in there. Um, <clears throat> and we, there is like the sort of, sort of Sovietology uh, aspect to it like we're just reading the tea leaves because we don't really know what else is uh we don't have enough information to make us uh to analyze anyway um but you know i think i relate this back to sort of issues of regime survival that <clears throat> oftentimes in these sort of personalistic dictatorships um you can think of them like monarchies you tend to rely upon your close family because the family ties are what keep you <clears throat> going when the politics don't work out um so it's not surprising to me that <clears throat> A, Kim Jong-un, when he got into power, started killing off the people, parts of his family that weren't loyal to him. And that B, he started promoting the parts of his family that were loyal to him, that he, that he could rely upon. And Kim Jong-un is definitely one of those people. Um, to what extent he's, for example, grooming her to be like a successor or something like that, I think that's really hard to tell. And it's, it's just getting that kind of information out of North Korea is just extremely difficult. Um, in terms of South Korea, what stuff are we just not paying attention to? I think, you know, it's interesting to me in that China recently uh, has done a, a whole bunch of regulations or sanctions on their own internal economy. Tech is, is, is the obvious one where they've started uh, interfering in, say, IPOs of major Chinese tech firms. But uh, two other elements come out. One is uh, essentially a, a much stricter regulation of the, how do I put this, the review school industry. Um, in much of Asia, you know, you go to school from, uh, let's say like 8.30 to like four, which is just, a much, I have two young kids. That's just much better timing. Um, and then the kids go uh, out for a little while. They, they eat, uh, you know, often like these are in cities so it's the the food is plentiful and cheap there and then they go to um a review school uh afterwards from like let's say six to nine nine thirty something like that uh china has just recently banned that um uh, <clears throat> or put a lot more regulations on it. and the, the the other big one is video game playing um and the the uh chinese youth are only allowed to play video games for three hours a week 
uh, one hour Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And part of the reason for that was because of the model of what happened in South Korea, that <clears throat> just like in South Korea, there are these big sort of fan bases and they start attacking each other. Uh, they can start manipulating markets to some extent <clears throat> and the price of goods just because of how big they are. You think back to last year's rally, uh, I forget where, where the Trump administration thought there was going to be this enormous rally. Um, and it ended up that uh, kind of the millennials or actually younger because whatever whatever is younger than millennials, I think they're, are they Gen Y, Gen Z? I'm not sure what they're called. Um, <clears throat> Uh, they went out and coordinating through, say, South uh, K-pop uh, fan clubs, bought up all the tickets. South Korean K-pop yeah, fan club. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so that is terrifying to say a, a, a party like the Chinese Communist Party, which doesn't like to see unregulated or uncontrolled mass movements. Um, if there's one thing that I think that has really had like that impact, it's K-pop. Like, you know, that's, we talk about South Korea's sort of political effects, that is enormous. This like was a genesis of this idea. And to see them actually have political power in some way is really impressive. Kind of scary in some ways, um, depending on, you know, what you think about these sort of social movements, but also very impressive nevertheless. Yeah, it, I think all of us as parents have things that we think about <laughs> all the time and you have to decide which of these matter and which of these, you know, um, are things that you intervene in. But I do think it's very interesting to put the notion that we need to know more ahead of we know these people and we think they're communist or they're you know, whatever, you know. Having the mindset like we need to know more is a better starting place. And it's probable that younger generations have more of an opportunity to have a proper starting place than perhaps an older generation. And so I'm wondering if there's an element of this K-pop global, like the hip-hop global, these are things that could be real inspirations of hope, mechanisms of communication and understanding and peacemaking. And maybe they can help all of us turn our brains away from let's recreate the Cold War or let's attack this person or this party or that to like, hey, let's try to understand, let's find the things that we share. Let's figure out like how do families get torn apart and what are the elements of families coming back together because what COVID did is say, you guys might be fighting about this or that parallel over there, but like, forget it. What do you, what kind of fools, what kind of fools <laughs> are running these think tanks and these discussions and these governments? Let's think about what it is. And so watching those K-pop stars at the UN yeah. going in and out and, you know, just, you know, this is, um, this is a different way of saying to all of those naysayers and all those eye rollers and all those cynical people who just dismiss the UN or dismiss the Supreme Court. Or, you know, there is a statement about the necessity of finding a way forward that was maybe the message of the post-Second World War generation that got mixed up with, well, that means A, B, and C. No. A, B, and C might be useful and they might work, might not. But the real thing is we can't go on like this. 
And I believe that element of, you know, leadership from younger people like we saw this week is something that is in that category of, you know, our hearts could use some lift, some hope, some inspiration. Yeah. And coming at it from the culture hmm. is probably, if we look through a few thousand years of human history, probably the path most effective for something as difficult as the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I'm it reminded of a bit of your previous question about technology. And I think, you know, <clears throat> depending on the country, you know, we're, you know, you'll like, for example, in the United States, uh, the boomers are now, I, I believe they are now not the largest population in the United States. It's, I believe, the millennials. And then you've got like uh, the, um, like the, the whatever Gen Y, Gen Z below them kind of coming up as well. The major issue is that for many of uh, millennials and younger, they're not politically all that active. But I think that's changing. Um, in, so two things. One, they're not politically that active, but there is the advantage, they have the advantage of technology, which can spread messaging and their facility with technology. It just means that they can kind of have a disproportionate political impact or they can start having that. Um, I think this last election was kind of a, a, a kind of a jumpstart for a lot of uh, people within those generations sort of political consciousness and kind of activism. On top of that, <clears throat> Because of the kind of economic, social situation that many people in, in these, these kind of uh, generations find themselves, they're much more socially oriented in the sense that there are the, the, the things like externalities, like public goods, um, <clears throat> matter a lot more to them. Um, the focus on climate change on the one hand or COVID on the other, I think kind of taps right into this, that we're all in this together and um, we can't wait for uh, kind of the me alone kind of philosophy to play itself out. We have to actually actively take charge and kind of engage politically. I think this is also true within much of Asia, uh, South Korea in particular, but you also see this in Taiwan to some extent in Japan, but certainly places like Hong Kong and Thailand where younger generations are leveraging their, their, their sort of social media savvy and technological prowess in order to kind of have outsized political influence, um, which I think to some extent is, is a good thing. Um, Very hopeful sign. Yeah, because yeah. they are oriented towards say, public goods, common good oriented uh, uh, policies. I think this is one of the things that creates that context that prepares the ground. Hmm. If the young who are, you know, and you know, we're heading towards a million deaths with COVID and it's going to be mostly boomers. And so the last election was discernment on 100,000 votes. And we're talking about a million boomers being taken off yeah. by COVID. Yeah. And so there is political change that comes by different means. And it's interesting to watch. But you painted for us a picture of a generational change that has an an awareness of externalities and appreciation of the threats, but also solutions. I know issues around justice, yeah. racial justice, <clears throat> gender equity. These things are the things that we see. And I'm very encouraged that you also see what I have experienced some is that in Asia, this is a very powerful force. And maybe 
um, the topic of the two Koreas, our topic for this evening, um, is one that you know brings a focus and we can look at it from all the sides we have. And then there's this beautiful noise, this beautiful music, this beautiful young people bringing out some other things, finding themselves in front of the UN and dancing through the halls and into the garden where the gun with the barrel that's tied into a knot so it will never kill another child in North Minneapolis or another soldier someplace doing their duty. And so it may be that Korea brings us, I don't know in a way that like Jamaica brought us a whole new culture in music so uh, I think we'll say stay tuned, audience. Thank you, Raymond Cove, for bringing all this vision and information and ideas and leaving us into this place of hope. And we're going to be watching North Korea, South Korea, K-pop, even if we don't quite get what that is, we'll kind of, it's got K in it. So that'll be a starting point to know that it has its roots. And maybe it's energy and maybe it's wisdom and vision coming from that divided family rendered asunder on that peninsula. Thank you so much again for joining us this evening. I look forward to seeing you again and engaging in more of these discussions. And thank you so much for being part of Global Minnesota's global conversation this evening. And to our audience, I wanna remind you there's many more programs World Food Day is coming up on October 15th, Cybersecurity Summit, all kinds of things. So go to the website, globalminnesota.org, click on events. Um, Raymond, you mentioned a book. Where do people find that book? Oh, sorry, yeah. Uh, so actually uh, two books I published this year. Um, both can be found on Amazon. Uh, I, yeah, uh, so the first one is, uh, or you can, you can find links to it on my website. Uh, rkuo.weebly.com. Weebly is W-E-E-B-L-Y. Um, the first one is Contests of Initiative uh, that was published in February. It's about uh, U.S. policy responses to China's assertions in the East and South China Sea. They're sort of, you know, island building, uh, kind of trying to uh, control sort of maritime waterways. How can the U.S. respond to that in conjunction with its local partners? Um, oh, actually, both books are right over my shoulder here. Uh, okay. the, the colorful one, uh, that's my wife's choice for the cover, which I think was really good, um, is called Following the Leader. It's about international military alliances and how uh, states tend to glom onto a single type of alliance strategy and how it's uh, how that strategy defines international order. Very right now, timely, very, very timely, all things considered. You were ahead of the curve again. Thank you so much, Dr. Kuo. Good evening to all of our viewers, wherever you are, if it's morning, noon, or night, we're really glad you joined us this evening here in Minnesota for our great conversation. Good night. <laughs>